Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to the Color of Money podcast. Now, our guest today is none other than the phenomenal Jay Papazan. And so some of you may not know who Jay is. Uh, Jay is a best-selling author. He serves as vice president of strategic content at Keller Williams International. Jay is just this phenomenal person. He comes from all different angles. You never know where Jay is coming from. You just know Jay is going someplace great. Here's the thing about Jay. You know, his most recent work was with Gary Keller on The One Thing. They sold over 3 million books worldwide. Uh, he's, garnered, he's garnered over 500 appearances, a national bestseller list, uh, including the number one Wall Street Journal hardcover. Um, Jay is originally from uh, Memphis, Tennessee. He attended the University of Memphis. You know, Jay, we could keep going on and on and on. It's, that's not really the reason why we're here. We're really here to talk to you about the color of money, um, the five areas of wealth, and just your perspective on the five areas of wealth. So when we talk about that, you know, what, what do you consider the five areas of wealth to be? Or what do most consider the five areas of wealth to be? Well, let's go back. First off on the bio, thank you for having me. I'm, it's an honor to be here. I'm so excited to be a part of this show and this program and this mission. Um, and the most important part of my bio is husband to Wendy Papazan, right? And father to Gus and Edward. But, you know, because she's not going to let me off the hook if she doesn't get a mention here. Um, they're like, you're Gary's partner and Wendy's husband, right? That's pretty much <laughs> like that's my identity. Um, so the the five kind of areas of wealth, I mean, I'm believing this kind of came out of the conversation of think like a CEO and some of the conversations that Gary and I had there. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, you look up and the, the five areas we were asking the question, like, like wealth is this idea of having more right than you need. In financial wealth, it's about, we defined it as having the passive income to finance your mission without having to work, right? You've got what you need taken care of. So we kind of identified financial, social, intellectual, physical, and spiritual wealth. And you can ask the question, well, most people talk about how to build financial wealth, but they don't realize that you could build abundance in other areas of your life. And my aha when I was preparing for this was that there's an approach that you can take to building wealth in all of them. So anyway, I won't, I won't, I don't want to monologue on you, but that's kind of the big idea. And, and so with that big idea, you know, it's, we all have like different ideas of wealth and what's more important and physical wealth, you know, you can kind of sort of see it a little bit. Um, financial, you can definitely see that. Social, just by the way people exchange in their environments. This is the one right here, intellectual wealth. That you, how, how do you see intellectual wealth? How, do, how does one know when, they've, when in a, in a intellectual wealth has manifested itself? So I want to ask you a question, right? How do you continue to grow and develop intellectually in a way, and, and I'm only by putting this, uh, I'm putting this as a, in a way that the world understands that you're intellectually wealthy. Well, first off, like, can we, can we debate some of the things that we say? Like, I, I would argue, sure. Sure. like, physical, a lot of people look physically healthy, but they may not be. Like, we have to go, like, we might go one by one on these, 
and asked like, well, how do we define wealth in this area? And then, because there's the appearance of wealth and the reality of it. And you also said something about, well, we can kind of see financial wealth. And I would, having taught financial wealth building since we wrote The Millionaire Real Estate Investor and I had to interview 120 millionaires, it's almost just the opposite. The people who have the appearance of wealth often are the ones that don't have it. Like most people, I think Morgan Housel, the author, said, when most people say they want to be a millionaire, they actually mean they want to go spend a million dollars, which is the opposite of what it means to be a millionaire. So I want to reel all that back in, just saying, like, let's hit all of those because I want to debate them and, and pick them apart so that we can go below the surface on what it means to be wealthy there. But you asked now the specific question, how does one build intellectual wealth? I had a, a mentor and was one of the first published authors I ever got to meet. I was like a freshman or so in college. And my dad kind of knew I thought I might want to be a writer. And so this gentleman, I want to say his name was Milan Berla, is a, but I'm maybe forgetting it. He wrote FedEx Delivers. So it was a book about FedEx, which is based in Memphis. And he just said, Jay, like if you're going to come up with new ideas. It's about being creative. And being creative is about connecting the dots. And so if you really want to be great at being creative, you need to have more dots than the average person to connect. So that idea of being an active learner, right, which is a huge part of Keller Williams culture, right, being learning-based, right? I want, to, I want to be a seeker of truth and understand not just this business environment, but the world we live in and understand how it all works. Because when you do you can actually get it to work for you, right? Versus being kind of a victim of it. So I just made a commitment early on to be a reader. And that's my way. I know some people, they're listening to this podcast because they like to learn by listening. And some people are going to be on YouTube because they need to see it. And some people, I was talking to a young man named Tuck. He was an a athlete here at UT and he's now become a realtor. And he just said, man, I want to be in the room. I need to be in person to be a learner. So learning your learning style is important. But for me, I was like books. And so I brought accountability to it. And I can tell you since 2012, no, 2013, I'll look up the actual number. I track the, the books I read. So yeah, since 2013, I've read 554 books. And every year I set a goal of, of reading 50. And I, I've never hit it. And my wife gets on to me. He's like, well, why don't you just read short books? And I'm like, no, that's not the point. The point is, like, I'm trying to read around the things I want to know. And you can see this because we're on camera. But I got a stack of books down there, just a little lower there. And that's just like the last 15 books on wealth building that I read. Because they're fresh and they were good. And I want to go back and, and maybe take notes. But like every year I read three or four, maybe five books around wealth. I read a couple of books about health. You know, our partner, Gary Keller, he reads a lot more on health than I do. I have a trainer. I, that's an area of my life. I just want someone to show me what to do. Tell me what to do. Because otherwise, I fall asleep with that book in my lap. But I try to read with a purpose. So my point on all of these is taking the principles of our book, The One Thing. If you know it's important to build welfare, build a habit. You know what? I'm going to listen to one pad pod, one instructional podcast a week. Right? That's an hour of my life. I can do it while I'm walking the dog or driving or whatever. 
instead of listening to the comedy podcast or the true crime podcast, which is entertainment, and that's fine. But make a commitment. For most people, you ask them, they'll say they read a book a month. And you ask them how many read they read the last quarter, and it'll be one. Like So people who are active readers these days might read four books a year. And that's fine. But just make a commitment. I'm going to read 10 pages a day. You read 10 pages a day, that's probably more than a book a month. But the actual commitment is building a habit of just reading about 10 pages. So you can do it around music or videos, but it's just got to be with a purpose. So is that you, Eric, that was going to jump in with the question or, or Daniel? So do you, one of, one of the things I, I, I struggle with, being an entrepreneur, you wear 50 million different hats and having that habit of being learning-based right now versus the fire you're trying to put out or the big meeting you're getting prepared for, it makes it troublesome in actually getting through that book. Do you find yourself um, reading cover to cover or do you find yourself reading until you get a message or you get a nugget that you can implement and then you got enough from that book? So I'm maybe not the best role model. The 554 books that I'm looking at my tracker that I read, I read all of those books. And that doesn't include, like, I probably buy 10 books a week because I also am in this, that's also my industry. Like you're in real estate and you look at the inventory of your market. These are my competitors. I do a lot of skimming. Most business books tell you about 80% of what you need to know in the first couple of chapters. And so one of the great things is when I'm reading the 50th or 60th book on, on wealth building, in the beginning, I had to read everything and I had to look stuff up because I didn't understand it. But then you look up a couple of years and you're reading your 15th book, maybe, around that topic. And now you're like, okay, I know this section. You're just kind of reading faster or skimming, which is I give you permission to do. And you're looking for validation of the models you believe to be true or something that challenges it. Because ultimately, if you're going to build financial, physical, spiritual, intellectual, social wealth, you need to have some principles in your head that you think are the truths about that, that you're not going to violate. So I love that we started here because like we say in our six personal perspectives, being learning-based, right? The foundation and of all of your action. So we're going to start by asking what's the best way to approach this, and then we're going to act. So I give you permission to especially set aside bad books. Books that teach you what you already know, just realize, okay, there's another check in that column. There's another person that is saying that this kind of marketing works, and they're, they're validating my philosophy. That's good to know. That's another smart person that's in my corner. The ones I actually read really carefully are the ones that challenge what I think is reality. And I just ask, is this person for real? Or are they making it up? Do they have a valid track record or not? Because I'm very slow to adopt an approach to things that are as important to me as my spirituality or my health. I'm not just going to jump on a bandwagon, right? I'm not going to be a fad surfer. And I'm also slow to change once I've adopted one. Because so much about anything that makes a big difference is your time on the task over time. And if we're constantly switching strategies, you never get any momentum. So I'm very careful. I had a, a business partner, and then I'll shut up, Daniel. I'm sorry. You asked a big question. And a lot of people refuse to quit bad books, which is why they never finish a book. Right? So just I, as an author, if you don't like my books, quit them and go to somebody who speaks to you and that you need to hear. But I love to be challenged 
And then I, I mean, I, I might be on the internet going, man, is this Daniel Dixon guy for real? Because he's really challenging it. And I'm trying to find out if you've got a valid basis. And then I might be on a hunt. Who are your, who are the people? Because over time, the basics rarely change a lot, but some of the tactics and strategies do. All right. So that's a big answer to that question. I'm sorry. But I just want to know, thank you for validating my thought process. Because I'm one of those people that had challenged reading, the, I'm challenged with reading the book from cover to cover. And I sort out the things that don't require my attention and I just keep going. So thanks for validating me. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I think a lot of busy people needed to hear that. And I love that Ryan Holiday, like he's one of the most voracious readers in the world, also tells people, quit bad books, right? Read good books. There are more books that we will love from cover to cover out there than we could ever read in our lifetime. Let's just talk really quickly about the impact of physical health on your productivity and your performance when we have that conversation about physical wealth. Well, it takes energy to do big things, mm -hmm. right? And I, I wanna do big things with my life. I want the people I care about to be able to do big things. And the cheat is when you're young, the energy comes easy. And it's easy to borrow and use time and hustle as a way to get what we want. And we're all old enough here. Right. Um, I might be the oldest, but we're all old enough to see people. I don't know. Emmerick might, might be. I'm not trying to throw yeah. Uncle Emmerick yeah, out being there. Yeah. I'm being courteous here. I'm not making assumptions. You got me on the beard, buddy. You got me on the beard. If I could grow mine, it would be white. But my point is people borrow against that account. Yeah. Right? And when it comes due, it's kind of like driving off a cliff, right? They don't just start feeling tired. They have a heart attack. So I would say, like, it's a little bit more complex to think about real wellness um, and that sort of having wealth there. I think of it as three things. And the one that most people overlook is sleep, right? If you're going to do big things, you have to rest. And today, you know, with TVs in our bedrooms and social media, most of us are chronically sleep deprived. Guess what? When you're sleep deprived, the hormones in our stomachs that signal that we're hungry turn on, and the ones that signal that we're full and sated turn off. So when we have too little sleep, we tend to have the munchies. So, I mean, it's funny. I talked to a dietitian, interviewed him, and he's like, yeah, a lot of people think they have a dieting problem. They have a sleep problem because their poor sleep makes their imp impulse control really hard. And they're constantly adding these little junk calories that they could have avoided. And so you know what I, I just learned from a I just learned from a doctor that um, wine, like you know, I like to have wine before bed, but that the alcohol is uh, what do they call it? I can't remember what they call it, but it it affects your sleep pattern, yeah. right? So I'm thinking I'm having a, a nightcap, right, to go to sleep, and it's actually disrupting the sleep pattern. Sleep, then diet. And then exercise. I think those are the dominoes in order. If you only had to build one health habit, try to get a good night's sleep. Um, after that, build a foundational diet. I, I love a good glass of wine. I like a good glass of bourbon. I used to like beer more than I do today, but like I don't, and I like a cheeseburger. I like all the things, but we eat a very either no breakfast or a healthy breakfast. I meal prep for my lunch. On Sundays, it takes me about 45 minutes. I just get a big bag of chicken thighs that are already, you know, fajita sliced and some uh, 
broccoli, put it all on the grill, and then just pack it up, and I've got my lunches for the week. So my first two meals are always really healthy. Now, by the time I get home, I don't have to be quite as disciplined for my evening meal, right? And when you're feeding young kids, like it's not like we're making grilled salmon and broccoli and my teenage boys are going to eat it. So we're making tacos and stuff, but I'm not worried about it because I've built a habit of my first two meals of the day. We're pretty disciplined. Jay, one of the things that one of the things I wanted to follow up with you on, I mean, we talk about physical wealth. And one of the things I've learned from Gary is that all five of these, these pillars of wealth, the physical one is arguably the most important because nothing else matters if you don't have your health. But one thing that we didn't talk about, and I think in our community, we don't, we don't discuss enough about or even have um, uh, the safety to talk about it enough is the mental health piece of it. So how does that mental health um, tie into this physical piece of wealth that we're talking about to keep you resilient on achieving more and wanting a much bigger life? Well, I love that you added that. When we wrote the book, originally we had physical health. And that was, uh, the, I'm talking about the one thing, and we have the seven circles on page 114. And in COVID, I had someone ask me, it's like, well, where does mental health live? And I was like, wow, that's a miss. And like Gary and I both pointed to different circles. So I was like, I said, for me, that's in my personal life. And Gary said, no, it's over here. And we need to, when we got rid of the word, now it just says health. What's the one thing you can do for your health? So I love that clarification. And while we've made great progress as a society of destigmatizing, you know, having um, going to see a counselor if your marriage is struggling or getting therapy, like, and uh, there's a great series out, Shrinkage, like now or whatever it is, but like we've destigmatized it, but it's still tough. And we have to get over this idea that asking for help for our mental health makes us weak. Everybody struggles at one level or another, and some people chemically struggle, and they absolutely need the support system. So first off is, one, give everybody give yourself permission and their loved ones permission to destigmatize it. Me personally, I get a lot of that. My, for me, it's stress, right? Stress builds up in my life. So working out and time alone, I've learned that I, I re-energize my cup fills up when I, I get to do some physical exercise and I get to be alone and may, probably in nature. And I need to attend to that. Or, I mean, you can't pour from an empty cup. So that's my version. And I, you know, I've got family members with seasonal depression. And so we have to manage their light exposure. And there's other things, but it's a very real topic. And especially for the young people in our lives with the suicide rates where they are, we have to be much more open about talking about it and destigmatizing it so that people can ask for help when they need it. What would you suggest? Like, I have my habits. What would you throw at me, Daniel? Well, one of the things my wife and I, because usually, especially if you're married, and you've been married for a while. I've been with my wife since I think we were like, I was like 19 years old or something. So literally half my life. And one of the things that we talk about, you usually go to a therapist, you usually go to a counselor when there's an issue. And so one of the things literally last probably eight months was, what if we just did this for maintenance? What if we don't have an issue and we go talk to the counselor and we just stay really good? How would that affect our lives? And you think about physical training, you think about all the other things you do in your business and your personal lives and going to a a non-biased third party and having a conversation is a safe space for 
um, for a relationship to, to flourish. So it's just, it's a, it's a safety to be able just to communicate and talk about what's going well, what's not going well, and how the perspective of life can change. Well, let me ask you both this, uh, because you are, you're talking about your spouses and mental health, and you've talked about working out with spouses and things like that. I was watching, Oprah has this soul, Super Soul Sunday, and she had a guy on talking about loneliness. You talked about mental health. And so what about the health? So for people who don't have a spouse, i.e. myself, right? Like, so for people who don't have a spouse, um, who are the other people? And this might go into your question, Emmerick, that you were going to ask about social wealth of just the people that you surround yourself with. Previously, we've talked about on this podcast, um, having mentors, right? Having people who uh, pour into you, um, yeah. having people to even just do things with and the importance of the people that you are are with. What do you think about the social wealth aspect of it, particularly and in, in, in general, I, I know I asked like a two-part question. The first question I was talking about just isolation, people who are yeah. don't have people around them, right? Like myself. And you also are creating a nice segue possibly to another area of wealth. I got you. I'm following I'm yes. picking, down what, I'm picking yes, up what you're Yes, yes, but, um, but so both of those things and then the social wealth, leading like you said into the social wealth part because obviously relationships play into wealth. Emmerich has yeah. a saying, he says all the time, that relationships will get you places money can't. And honestly, the reason that part of the reason that I'm here is because yeah. you and I met, right? Yeah. Someone introduced me to you. And so uh, talk to me about people who maybe uh, you're doing these things. You both have talked about doing these things together with someone else. But what about when you're by yourself doing them and how do you get around people who are going to be that social element that you need to be wealthy in that way? So I'll, I'll kind of go through the stages. I do think that too, like just in terms of having someone to talk to, right? This is not maybe not totally alleviating the loneliness. I know that a lot of schools, there are counselors that are trained and very good and can provide some level of anonymity. And almost every church or synagogue or institution, you can also get counseling there. And they, I think that our religious institutions have done the best job of destigmatizing it, right? Um, sitting down with your pastor or your priest or whatever that is to you is something that most people think of as just healthy. And they associate that with more of your devotion, even if you're getting some maybe unofficial guidance on some other areas of your life. That said, um, there's so much research for our kids that when they play team sports, they have lower levels of depression. Um, a, a girl who plays team sports is less likely to be abused later in life. There's, I mean, all the research there. So can we teach them when they're young? to be a part of these sports where we learn what it means to get along with people. And even if you are an introvert, I'm a huge introvert. You just kind of pick up some friends, almost like baggage along the way. Right. And, um, introverts, it's not like they don't love people. They just don't need them all the time. And so I think, you know, when you, as an adult, <laughs> I love that. I'm going to start using that. That's great. It's not that I don't love true. people. I just don't need them all the time. No, yeah. <laughs> my wife does. She's an extrovert. She gets energy from being around people. Uh, uh, so to her, it's energizing. To me, it's draining. So I, I need my alone time to re-energize, right? So it's about how bad you need them, not whether or not you like them. It's not, it's not being a misanthrope. I don't hate people. I just don't need them around me all the time. So I would look up and say, you know, there's always, if you're new to a town, the classic strategies are go join an organization, right? Go be a part of a club, right? You can go to, like here in Austin, you can go to the shelter. And on Saturdays, there's a line of people 
that are walking those shelter dogs around the park want to do a kindness to an animal. But by the way, it's also like a pickup place for singles, right? <laughs> and I mean, come, come on, all those dudes want to be walking around with the puppy because everybody's coming up and going, oh my gosh, your dog's so cute. Oh, I'm just doing this for charity. Oh, wow. And he's a nice guy with a big heart, whatever. <laughs> so I think you just have to understand and, and that you do need people, even if you are an introvert. And being around people, companions are huge. And that's why people like that have a companion live longer. And so in the absence of that, like, yeah, get a pet because that actually counts as a companion. But I would go out and join a club. Go Instead of working out at home, go be in a gym. Be around people, even if you're not interacting with them. And that's a healthy step in the right direction. Well, I think the other, the other piece of that, I think we're all, we all search for our tribe. We're trying to identify who, who is on my team, who's fanning my flame for success, who's loving on me and I'm loving on them, who has my back. And that we're, we're, we're almost like tribal in nature. We're, we're, we're pack animals. And the more that we can be around people, um, good people that give us energy and that aren't what we call energy vampires in our world, um, can help us just pull out of that, pull out of that hole that we're in, that little pit, get us feeling better about ourselves. And then, you know, so much more can come from those relationships over time. I love that. The word tribe resonates with me. Like, totally, you know, it's right? like there's your family that you're born with and there's the family you get to choose. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because we talk about social welfare. Uh, one of the things that we really have to be careful about in that space uh, is that we have to be willing to bless and release people also that are in our space. So in that, in that when we talk about social welfare, we meet all kinds of people from all walks of life, and we have to figure, truly figure out who's in our tribe and who's not in our tribe. And that social wealth thing is the ability to grow your social wealth by, be, by being willing to bless and release some people from your life. And sometimes those people that you have to bless and relief, release from certain areas of your life, sometimes they're your family. That's a difficult thing sometimes. So, Emmerich, if you tell me, bless you, or something like that, is that just like the open door to getting you out of my life? <laughs> no, well, no, you not say that so friendly. It's so nice the way you say it. When you say it, it's, it's not the blessing part, it's the release part. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm just teasing. There's a, there's a Jim Rohn quote that I love, and it's like, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And so, again, as a parent, I pay a lot of attention to who my kids are hanging out with. And I want to, if I have to, try to engineer that they're hanging around with people that will be on the playing field versus smoking cigarettes under the bleachers, right? Right. I want to try to engineer that as much as I can. And it's sad as adults, you know, as parents, we know this, but as adults, we don't always take that. Mm-hmm. And so we don't take our own advice. That's good. So I'd look up and just say, all of these are about being purposeful on some level, right? It's not just our tribe, Daniel mentioned, because that's very real, but it's the tribe that we choose to be a part of. And I think about, I, I'm, I'm a huge Memphis athletics fan, and like one of my favorite ball players right now is Ja. And I'm worried because he's playing basketball in a hometown with some people he grew up with that may not be the five that he needs for his life right now. And he's gotten in a lot of trouble. 
They're under the bleachers, Sanjay. They're under the bleachers. I, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know him personally and I don't yeah. wanna I don't wanna judge, but like course, that's what yeah. I worry about. One of my yeah. friends was an athlete there and it's John Wilfong, he's an advisor now. And he just talked about how sometimes it was a blessing to move to a new town and be forced to create your new kind of tribe around the team you were playing with versus maybe the kids that helped you get to that court. But the agendas were there and they're young people that are being manipulated a lot. So I just think we have to be purposeful for the people we love and ourselves. Look up and let's hang around with people that are already where we want to go or are going there with us. And that creates a lot less friction in our life. And, and that's the and that's the that's where I where the conversation about bless and release. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's not that we don't love those people. We don't care about those people. They just don't fit in certain segments of our life. And you have yeah. to, they just require, they, you have to put them in a place where they're valuable or they have some value to you because they did, they, they could have helped you get to where you, where you are at this point. You just can't dwell in that space because they're not going to get you to where you want to go. Who we hang out with matters and it has a real impact on where we end up in life. And, and that, that place, that comes right into the next uh, area of wealth that we talk about. And that's spiritual, the spiritual wealth. And yeah. in spiritual wealth, it's about mindfulness. And, and there's a question, what role does mindfulness play in your daily routine and how has it contributed to your spiritual wealth? And what you just spoke about was mindfulness in your social wealth category, but flipping this to spiritual wealth, what role does mindfulness play in your daily routine? See, I think that's maybe more Gary yeah. than me. Okay. Um, I, I, for me, this is the prime circle. Um, I think if you get this wrong, everything else that comes after it. And I, I grew up in a religious household and we use the word spiritual because we want it to be open to everyone. Um, I mean, I pray every day and I make that an unconditional. And I, you know, as long as my kids are under my house, we say thanks for at least one thing. That's my question. What's one thing you're grateful for today? Don't make it a big, like I couldn't stand those long prayers when I was hungry, when I was a kid. Oh, that's my dad. Okay. Keep going. I know, yeah. <laughs> I know. But there are those people, and it was like, and bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies. It was uh, a script they were reading. And <laughs> we talk about tacos and Xboxes and our, you know, like, just get real. What's one thing that you're really thankful for today? Great. And be grateful. So the habit I wanted to instill, both because we're doing hard things and also in our kids, is every day, make sure that we are very clear that we're grateful for at least one thing. And if you know that you've got something to be grateful for, it moves your attention away maybe from all the stuff that was crap that happened that day. So you know, with that being in mind, how has is, how is spirituality played in, in, into your life and your success? How do you equate that strong physical space with the successes you had and just the guiding compass of your life? How does spirituality play in there? I, I mean, I just grew up raised that we are here for more than just what we do on this earth. And that's that's just my journey. And everybody's got their journey. And in, in our company, we hold out that people can make that journey, whatever it is for them, their number one and honor that. Doesn't mean they get to proselytize us, but we're going to honor and respect their choice around it. That's one of the reasons I'm still here after 24 years, um, which is crazy. But um, when I say that out loud, it's like almost half my life. But um, I just think that that's an important question that people have to resolve for themselves. 
And if it's not a religious answer, then I do think there's a spiritual answer and they need to be grounded and they need to understand who they are and what they were meant to do and fulfill. So taking religion out of it, do you really understand who you are, what you need and what you're meant to do? And people who have a sense of mission in this life, man, when you know what you're what direction you're ultimately going, it makes it easy to say no to the distractions or easier. So I, I get back into our purpose, our sense of why, clarity, and that's where Gary's coming from. Mindfulness, right? To calm his mind and remind him what's important. A lot of people meditate. Man, I suck at it. I've tried so many times and I just fall asleep. Don't worry. I, 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 so that, you are so validating me, Jay. Yeah. I, I fall asleep all the time. This whole meditation thing, I'm like this. But then again, ask Julia, Julia say, don't worry about Emmerich will fall asleep anyway. It doesn't matter. Meditating or not. I just, I'm, that's one of my superpowers. I get to bed at night and it's very rare that I can't flip the switch and go to bed and actually fall asleep. And so like I, I look at my blood pressure and all that things. And I think a lot of the reasons that people meditate, I've just answered that question elsewhere. I journal right? I, I write. So I have to examine my thoughts when they're, they're on paper and get clear. Like, am I thinking straight? It's really funny. Like you can have thoughts and you can say words, but when you actually write them down, you're like, man, this doesn't make sense. Right. If I thought about like, I have some habits that I think help keep me clear and the prize for me, which is mine and maybe not anyone else's, but I, I get my values. I can, I can keep them kind of a little bit more centered than they would be in this crazy world. And I think that's what people have to do. What is What does it mean to you to have a spiritually wealthier life? Um, what does that look like to you? And can I adopt some rituals, some habits in my life that'll keep me pretty close to that center? I don't want to be a deathbed conversion, right? I don't want to have that crisis late in life that, oh, maybe I was gambling right? was something I didn't want to gamble. And I certainly don't want to be gambling against my values because we know that so many people have regrets around not living their the life that was true to who they were. They lived it for other people. So so you, you mentioned a couple of things. And this is the last one we have is financial wealth. And you mentioned yeah. things when you really you talked about we couldn't afford a trainer. And you spoke about growing up on the farm. I didn't actually grow up on the farm, but I spent, that was my summer camp. Oh, was just my summer. parents would send me to work on the, the dairy farm and it was cool. I got to shoot shotguns and drive trucks when I was 12. I thought it was awesome. Okay. So that your financial journey, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can you share your financial journey, you know, from where you began and where you did the transition and then as lightly or as, as deep as you want to get where you are now and, and really... What were the key steps you took to get to that place from not being able to afford a trainer to flying your trainer in from China or wherever you fly? Yeah. The, the, <laughs> what's, the good news is we started really late and we turned out pretty good. Really late. We were very late to the game. And it's not complicated. You can make it complicated. But um, having a financially wealthy life can actually be quite simple. It's just not easy. So... Um, for the first 30 years of my life, um, I was focused. I thought the way to get ahead was get a job and get promotions and get raises. 
And I did have fairly fiscally responsible parents. And they told me like, pay off your credit card and don't take on lots of debt. And so my wife came from an even humbler background. My, my dad worked for a utility and he eventually went on to be an executive, but he was like an engineer. And we grew up, you know, lower middle class before when I graduated from high school, he kind of became an executive and moved up the ladder. Wendy's like family is trailers and stuff, right? But she also knew the basics. Like she knew not to run up credit cards. She knew to pay them off. So when we got married, we were lucky. We didn't start like in a deep pit. She had about twenty or $30,000 of um, school debt. And I had a very small amount. We'd both been working collectively, uh, gosh, for probably 12 or 13 years to get, you know, like when you think about getting out of college and we go get our jobs, we're working. And the first time we did our net worth, and that's adding up everything that we own and then subtracting all of our debt, right? So what are all the assets, our 401k, a car, right? And then we subtract all of our debts. The first time we did that, we were worth about $2,000. And that I got to tell you, that's pretty cool that we were in the positive number. But we didn't know what was what. Was what. Until I started working with Gary and Mo and the people here that were focused on not salary, but assets. Can I use the money I earn instead of just buying junk that I eventually will give to Goodwill or the tires will fall off or that car I'll have to sell for a lot less than I bought it for? Can I buy things, assets that go up in value? And that was like a huge, like mind blowing thing. It's like, oh, if I do that, and I focus on doing that, at some point, those asset, assets are either worth so much more or they pay you some income, eventually that, that will replace the working income. And I'm, I'm staying super high level because we're, we're late on time and we may have to do, I'm sure y'all are going to do lots of episodes on these concepts. But I finally got, okay, it's not about just income and expenses. If you can't live on less than you earn, right? You can't spend less than you make. You're, 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 you're not even getting out of the gate. So that's the first discipline. Now, can you save some money and buy assets that appreciate like a home, a rental property, right? I mean, I don't care, gold bullion, but you're gonna buy assets that over time will go up in value. And if you build that habit, time is your friend. And our first job when we decided to be millionaires, I'd interviewed all these millionaires. My mind was blown. I interviewed 120 men and women that had over a million dollars in equity in their real estate portfolio. Not just value. This is like, if you sold everything, this, this is what's left. And like, they were immigrants. There were people that had never gotten a college education. People that were started by putting everything on credit, all the wrong things, putting everything on credit cards. But the theme was the same. I learned to save my income, put it aside. I learned to identify value in some sort of asset class. And I'm in real estate. So they were mostly doing it with real estate. And then I bought it. And then time started working in my favor instead of against me. And it's a long game. It took Wendy and I, I think, eight plus years to go from 2,000 to over a million in net worth. When you added up everything we owned, subtracted all the debt, like the money that would be, would be more than a million dollars. 
And the eight years after that, it's like many, 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 many times. It's one of those, it blows your mind when things are compounding, not just a linear progression. Now they're going up on a percentage basis very reliably. It blows your mind how big it gets when you have enough time working in your favor. That house that we were sure, I mean, we bought our first house, 175 grand, and immediately the tech, the tech stocks all, the bubble burst in 2001. And we were like, oh, we just bought the crappiest house in a good neighborhood for 175 grand, which blew our minds at the time. And we could barely afford it. And we put 3% down and we just thought we're screwed. We're never going to get our money out. Well, three years later, that became our first rental property. Instead of selling it, we saved up our money, rented that house and bought the house where Wendy was eight months pregnant when we found the move up house so we could have another bedroom for the baby crib. But we kept it and someone else started paying off our mortgage. I think we got $33 in cash flow. It wasn't a lot of money, but they were paying off the debts and we could keep that house in another house. Guess what that house is worth today? Less than 1,200 square feet on 11th of an acre in Austin. Oh, Lord, how much? How much, Jay? <laughs> if you tore it down and bought the dirt, a little over yeah. $950,000. Yeah. yeah. But that's also two decades, right? Yeah. I think if you go back wherever you are today, look up what the average home price is. Now go back 20 years and your mind will be blown. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. I remember when we first moved here and I saw 175 and there'd be these old hipsters in old Austin going, yeah, when we bought our house in downtown, it was 24,000. And you're like, that doesn't make sense because real estate is one of those things that compounds. It goes up 4% on average every year, very reliably. But over a long timeline, you think 4% ain't nothing. Man, it 4% of a big number becomes a really big number. Well, so think, anyway, that's I think the principles. Save money, invested in assets that go up in value. Man, if you do those things, you're, you're going to be building financial wealth. I think one of the things you said, Jay, to, for, for all of our listeners is wealth is built through buying and, buying and holding real estate. It's not built through flipping real estate or buying and, and being in for a year or two. It's set it and forget it, break even, cash flow a little bit, and then sit on them and then allow that time to start working for you. Because then when you look up in two decades later, the dirt is worth 900000 right? Yeah, we, we won the lottery, but it would have been worth a lot more anywhere we bought it, right? Um, I'll tell you, like, we read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I went back to read it again. I was like, this is a really weird book, but it still taught you the asset thing. Like, he taught you a couple of good lessons, but, like, the first lesson is child labor. Like, you're working for free for this guy, and he's the rich dad, and that's the first thing you need to learn? I was like, okay. Uh, cash flow quadrant, talking about how you can be employed and you're working for money, or you can be self-employed. Like I'm a realtor and I'm my own boss, but guess what? If I stop working, I stop making money. And business income is when you're not necessarily working, but the business is making money. And investor income is when you make that investment and it sends you money. Like that was worth the book, Cash Flow Quadrant. And when you just talked about, I look up, and for me, we did a couple of flips early on. And I was like, hey, that's self-employed job income. That was a job. Make no mistake about it. And it wasn't always profitable. And we had to pay 
income tax like a job on it, right? The, the IRS taxed us at a higher level because we were flipping it fast. Now you hold it, that's investment income and investment growth. And it just kind of blew my mind the first time I connected those dots. I was like seeing the world is it the red pill in the matrix that you take and you see reality? <laughs> the blue pill, yeah. <laughs> that was the red pill for me. I was like, okay, everything has changed. Yeah. I just I think it's fascinating on how all of these all these pillars are so independent, but they're so intertwined. Because what I heard you saying about the investing piece was you interviewed a hundred millionaires. So would you say 120? Is that the intellectual bucket or is that the social bucket? I think it's a little bit of both. But then you start learning that then influences your behavior, your habits, that then will in turn influence your financial wealth and your overall yeah. position. I just I think it's I think it's fascinating how they're all intertwined. Um, they're very interconnect, inter- yeah. interconnected. Um, one of my favorite authors, a guy named Morgan Housel, he, Housel, he wrote The Psychology of Money, which is not like an actionable book, but it's a really smart understanding how our relationship with money. He defines wealth as being able to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it for as long as he wants with, with whomever he wants. And I remember my aha, I was like, yeah, that sounds like, okay, I've got the money to have complete freedom of choice. I can do what I want with whoever I want for as long as I want, right? And you're like, that's also health, by the way. I'm watching my aging parents and they can't do whatever they want anymore for as long as they want with whomever that, right? Those, those things, if you don't have a wealth in your health, that can be taken away too. So I think how it impacts our, our life matters too. So, so here, here's, here's what's, what we've done in this, and what we've done in this, this session. Well, we taught, we said, let's read more books on a consistent basis. And then let's get more sleep so we can have the mental strength to do the things that we have to do. And then we said, let's go meet a bunch of people that are going to help us get to where we want to go in our wealth journey. And then let's just be grateful for all of the things that life has brought us. And let's invest in items that build that build wealth rather than strip away wealth, i.e. they appreciate and value. So yeah. in this conversation, we've talked about intellectual wealth. We've talked about uh, physical wealth. We've talked about uh, social wealth. We've talked about spiritual wealth. And last but not least, financial wealth. So in this entire conversation, Jay, what's your real takeaway if it's one thing that we can do to make all three of these components of wealth come to existence in our lives, what's the one or two things we can do to make this all come together? Sure. Great question. Thank you, Emmerich. I, I think my aha when I was looking at it, and maybe it was because like we were writing the one thing when I really started getting purposeful about shaping habits in my life, I'd done a lot of the right things, but it wasn't because I was being thoughtful, right? I was either mimicking someone else or just kind of, trial and error. But you look up and you realize that if you want to have something in the future, just become the kind of person that does that naturally. Like if you want to be healthy, just become the kind of person that goes to the gym a few times a week and works out. Become the kind of person that that gets a good night's rest and eats well. Like don't overcomplicate it, but build rituals and habits into your life 
And I did write the book. I'm pointing at it, you know, like one thing to start with one. So, Jay, we really want to thank you for being here with us. This has been just extremely impactful for myself personally. And I trust for the the people who tune into our podcast. And we want to thank you for being here with us. And we look forward to having you back again. I'm pretty sure this is this is the first. This is not the last. I'm not pretty sure. I know this is not the last. And so thank you so much for being here. And to my co-hosts, Julia and Daniel, next week, let's heat it up again. Let's bring somebody else special here again. And let's just give our podcast, our podcast tribe, something special. All All right. right. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, everyone. I'll see y'all next time. Yes, yes. Follow the Color of Money podcast today and get notified when new episodes are released weekly. Be part of this transformative listening experience. 